0: hey everybody it is episode 29 of the running rogue podcast this is chris joining you as always steve is here hey steve hello world we've got a couple of special guests today and we're excited to have them we've got adam daly who's a name that many in austin may not know but should know by the time of this by the time this podcast is over you will know more than you want to know perhaps about adam daly but he would be arguably, as Steve has said, perhaps the most accomplished Austin-based runner ever.
1: Yes, I would say, well, at least male, ac- male. most accomplished. Good his point. wife would probably be the most accomplished
0: female. Distinguished, you know, put an asterisk mm-hmm. there. So most accomplished male Austin runner, but has also started several businesses, has got some interesting entrepreneurship stories, and has a book out that we're going to talk about on traveling the world with his family of, of young children and wife. So
1: And in an interest of full disclosure, he's pretty much my best friend. So <laughs> just so everyone knows.
0: So yeah. Another, well, we'll a- have another to call, asterisk, call it out there. Another asterisk there, which he's is my drinking buddy. Which <laughs> may mean that I have to rein these two in. <laughs> but it also means we're gonna get some dirt on Steve. So Woohoo! So that's good news. Before we get there and talk to Adam in more depth, we're gonna intro as always with some current events. We've got a few things. We've also got Kate Barrett joining us. Hey, Kate, how are you? Hey, I'm good. Kate is a Rogue employee and has run on Rogue AC, Rogue Athletic Club. She's also a member of the Wazelle Valet in town and is going to be on to help us kind of do the intro, which we'll talk about in just a second. So we've got three intro topics. The first is I want to talk about a big Local Central Texas performance this past weekend at the Brooks PR Invitational Mile. We had Sam Worley, who is a high schooler from New Braunfels, Kamal Canyon High School, Mm -hmm. ran a 4.02 to win the Brooks PR Mile. He's going to be headed to UT next year.
1: That's a big deal. It's a really big deal, Chris. A bigger deal than I think most people will recognize. At this point in time, 402 is sort of passe, which is hard to say. For our listening public who are not really milers, you might think 402 is a flying time, but there are so many high schoolers right now running in the sub 402 range. But Sam, I think, has been nearly undefeated his entire year this year on the track. Um, UT got a grand, great future athlete. We will be hearing from Sam Worley at UT and way beyond, I believe. He's a He's got a way of finding a finish line, as I like to say. Blood in the water. He's a shark. He gets to the finish line at the time that he needs to. And um, super excited for him to be on the 40 acres and get to watch him run over the next couple years.
0: He's got some footsteps to follow in. And former milers at UT, he has incidentally run almost sub four. He was just over four in for his PR
1: for the mile four Four flat mid. At the Texas Relays, which I know Adam knows is no joke. It is very hard (laughs) to run fast at the Texas Relays. It is. It is because it's always hot and windy. Yes. And he beat a pretty, probably the most famous current Austinite. I mean, most famous Austinite that's a runner that day, too. He he took took down Leo Manzano on that day. So congrats to
0: Sam Worley on his result. We will be watching you as you head to the 40 Acres. Hook him. That's a name to watch for those of our listeners. The other intro topic we had is sort of more preparatory. We've got to talk about Shalane versus Jordan Hasse. This is a matchup that maybe a few years ago everybody would have sort of rolled their eyes at, but now given Jordan's success in Boston, she has now been added to the Peachtree list, entry list. So she'll be racing, at least as of now, she'll be racing Shalane head to head in the 10K distance on July 4th at Peachtree in Atlanta. So, assuming that plays out, and I think, again, there's some situations that, you know, depending on how Shalane does at USA's where she may decide to forego that Petrie race, but assuming that plays out,
1: who do you like, Shalane versus Jordan? I am very high on Jordan right now, but I just don't think she's got the foot speed to take down Shalane late in a 10K race, especially with Hill's. I, I'm gonna go. F- I'm gonna call Shalane, but I think um, I just think it'll be the Wiley veteran that gets Jordan in that short a distance. I think if it was a half marathon, I think I'd put more of my money on on Jordan, and that may seem a little bit weird because Shalane is not known for her foot speed, but Jordan, though she was a great 1500 meter runner in high school and did it a little bit in college, she just doesn't have those last that last set of wheels usually um she's not a closer in the last 400 meters i think shalane's experience will will allow her to get the victory also Peachtree is an incredibly hard race to get right it's really hilly it's very hard to get it just right it's usually hot it's very hot but of course that i we we said the same thing about about jordan at at uh at boston and she killed the hills there on a course that's really hard to get right on your first so one now so, you're talking out of both sides uh, of your mouth listen <laughs> i'm gonna i picked my po- i picked my pony all right i picked my pony but but uh but i i do know that i could be wrong so what do you so, think
0: well i would pick chelaine as well i think it's an easy choice honestly i think we'll have bigger hopefully bigger Shelane versus jordan battles in the future ideally at the marathon distance but to me, it comes down to how hard it is to bounce back from a marathon and get back into 10K shape so quickly without having really that much time to rebuild. And plus, you know, Jordan recently had a 5K on the track that was just OK for her. Nothing com- you know, that really blazing. And so she's showing that she's still coming back from that marathon effort. And so, given the fact that she's still rebuilding, I think she's probably behind the curve in terms of catching Shalane. Now, that being said, Shalane has recently just come off injury herself, and just ran the Portland Track Festival, but she ran a thirty-one, thirty-something, you know, to Not put comparable her comparable to what Jordan's
1: time was to put her right to
0: put her six on the yeah. U.S. list so far. Going into the, the USA's, which will have already happened by the time you listen to this, but point being, I think Shalane's in a better position just because Jordan's bouncing back from the marathon. Give Jordan another three months. I think it could be more competitive, and I hope we get to see those two face off in a marathon before Shalane hangs up her. The one
1: caveat to this is that Alberta wouldn't have Jordan running if she wasn't ready. So which means she may not race. <laughs> no, we'll see. You're right. She's more recovered from Boston than we might be giving her credit for. It could also mean
0: that the 5K she did on the track was just a prep race that she was... Yeah, she did like 18 miles on
1: repeats or something right after. But
0: either way, Shalane's the Wiley veteran. I think she's going to take her. We will see, and hopefully we'll get to see that battle play out. By the time you listen to this, you'll know, because it will probably depend on Shalane's results at USA's. So those are our current running events. The third thing we want to talk about in intro, which is why we have you here, Kate, is some drama i guess you could say that it happened has happened in the running community and on the twitterverse this past 10 days really um there's a woman by the name of kelly roberts who writes a blog called run selfie repeat and she has been in the news recently both in a good way because she was recently on the cover of women's running but also in a bad way because she's been called out by a site called marathoninvestigation.com for having banded in races. And so there was some, some sort of chaos on Twitter this past weekend, which we want to talk about with, with her and with Wazell, who is currently sponsoring her, that call into question you know, her legitimacy, her authenticity as someone that's a proponent and a, someone that people look to in this sport, but also raises questions about banding, raises questions about who's a pro athlete, and or what are the dividing lines there and also you know what we should see or want and expect from brands that we support so we figure because it's running and it's all these things that we talk about it's worth talking about plus kate's been passionate about it she reached out to me via text and and has some insights from her perspective as a member of the was of that i think are going to be interesting for this discussion so we're going to talk about but before we dive in and i will say you can Find a pretty good chronology of the whole story if you go to marathoninvestigation.com. Derek Murphy is the is the person who who publishes that site. He has become famous for outing Boston marathoners who have gotten into Boston by doing nefarious things like stealing or using other people's bibs or having friends run with their bib or cutting courses and things like that. So he's doing work in our sport to try to out cheaters, and and he has outed Kelly as someone who banned it in races in spite of her platform, and the whole story, if you want to th- kind of get a quick summary of the chronology, in March 2014, Kelly ran the New York City half. She did it by purchasing a bib on Craigslist, and not really knowing or thinking that she would ever get the platform that she now has. But in that race, she took 13 pictures, one in every mile. Uh, selfies, essentially, with guys in the background where she was making commentary about hot guys. I think the hashtag she used was hot guys at the Newark, New York City half. And she claimed that she was doing it because she was running on a miserably cold day and she was trying to entertain her sister who was running with her. Not thinking that it would become... Viral, But ultimately her post became viral and got picked up in New York Daily News and it became the seminal event that gave her the platform to create the blog Run Selfie Repeat, which has now become famous in a sense and is followed by a lot of women, especially. And she also has her own podcast, the Run Selfie Repeat podcast. All that was going well from March 2014 until about February of this year when Derek Murphy outed Kelly Roberts as having bandited that initial race that kind of became the source of her fame and so he had kind of stumbled upon the fact that she had bandited that race and and or run it with a, a bib that she bought in Craigslist so she called he called her out in February via a post on his site she responded in March semi i apologizing for it, at least recognizing the potential stress that it puts on a race to have someone in the race that's not officially registered but then ultimately was outed again in june early june of this year when Derek murphy pointed out a couple other races that she had quote bandited by jumping in to run with friends without a bib. so then about a week after that it became public really the debate that had been going on for a few months within the wazelle valet about Kelly Roberts and her role with Wazelle because she is now sponsored by Wazelle and there were members of that group which is really the the kind of grassroots team that supports Wazelle that weren't comfortable with having Kelly in the mix as someone supported by Wazelle one particular member Aisha Mirza got ultimately kicked out of the Wazelle Valet because she called out Kelly on Twitter and in other social media facets so so here we are now, and we're recording here on June 20th. Wazelle has defended their position, supporting Kelly, although done that with some missteps. And Kelly is apologetic, but also a little bit defiant because she believes that even though she may have gotten to her position by abandoning her race, her platform of empowering women and And really talking about how, you know, all body tops are welcome in the sport really justifies how she got here. So, Kate, I'm going to take this to you because there's lots of different tentacles to this. First of all, just how did you get exposed to the story? You've seen it from the inside because Wazelle has their own team board Mm -hmm. for the group. So how did you get exposed to it and what was your initial reaction?
2: Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I saw that they were partnering with her as a muse, which is one of their women that they, um, they don't have anything about them being sponsored, but they're listed on their website as being part of their team. And they're just women who may or may not run, but they view them as like role models for other areas of life. Um, So Kelly is officially a Wazel muse, but she is the only one who is, or at least the only one they've come out and said that they pay her. Um, So when they started just kind of posting content about her. I think it was just um, a lot of maybe, you know, p- she talks a lot about body positivity in her sports bra squad. So it was a lot of posts about that. Um, and it did rub me the wrong way, but I couldn't really put my finger on it. And I just thought um, that it was my own like jealousy that another runner who wasn't fast um, was popular or being like exposed by um, given exposure by this brand. So I really just was like, well, that's my own problem, that's my own insecurity. I should put that away and just you know move on and follow people that I do care about. but at but your at views that time.
0: now are more complicated, right? Yes. So how did your reactions evolve?-hmm
2: um, So later, um, I guess earlier in June, around the time that maybe the other marathon investigation post came out, I just saw Aisha um, from the Volley team posting about Kelly. And I actually met her a couple years ago at a track meet in Nashville and had just kind of known who she was just as a super fan. Uh, She's just really active on Twitter, interacts a lot with other like with pro athletes. So um, I just saw her posting a lot and I was like, man, this is really, really strongly worded. Uh, It was a lot of like liar cheat and really just critical of uh, Wazelle sponsoring her and just her being a role model for the the Volet. So I started to dig into it more and think, okay, well, what, what did, you know, I never liked Kelly, but what did she, did she really do something wrong? Like, do I have a reason to dislike her now? And I think that's what, um, as this discussion grew and, uh, you know, Wazelle started to respond to it, and I think that's when everyone really started to pile on, on Twitter and Facebook comments, um, a lot of people were kind of in that same headspace as me, uh, maybe, Honestly, just, like, not being comfortable with her as a sponsored athlete or a role model. But once we found something out that we were able to kind of pin on her, it really, like, made things start moving fast. And the, the things being the banditing, uh, mostly.
0: Right. So, but your opinions are complicated. Mm-hmm. And from our text, you can sort of see both sides of the story. Mm-hmm. So talk a little bit about that tension within your own mind.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, she is a, I I, I had to look at it and say, is it, is it really then, you know, maybe it's not just that I'm jealous of her. Uh, Is it that the banditing, is it really that bad? Uh, The banditing, I, you know, I don't think you should run a race without signing up for it. But yeah, it's something that I've done. I think it's something that a lot of people have done. Uh, There's a lot of different like justifications for that. So then I had to think, well, if that's something that's a gray area, again, is that a reason to totally just dismiss this person or say they're not worth being sponsored? And I couldn't come up with it. And the only other thing I had left was just, you know, she appeals to, uh, it seems like she appeals to like newer runners and people who maybe aren't, they don't feel as comfortable in the running world. They haven't been doing it for that long. And... I thought, you know, if she doesn't seem like she she doesn't represent me for the Wazelle team, does that mean that, you know, the team doesn't represent me? And does that mean that I don't want newbie runners to be on the team? And is that a problem? Because, you know, the whole the brand's platform is about sisterhood and supporting other women. And I started to think maybe I'm not as supportive of other women as I think that I am.
0: So does that mean as you land on it now that you're more supportive of Kelly or or mm-hmm. less? Are you still thinking that? Yeah, she shouldn't be a sponsored athlete.
2: Um, So even since we did talk, I had one kind of revision, but I would say first I came into it, you know, wasn't a fan, was not a fan of Wazell sponsoring her. Then I thought about it some more and I thought, well, what does that say about me? That means I'm not being supportive of other newbie runners who maybe do find her inspiring. So I kind of came around and I was like, Kelly doesn't deserve all this, like, vitriol. She's, you know, probably made this error, didn't really mean to, you know, tell everybody that they should bandit races. She apologized to the race directors. Okay, you know, maybe she's not for me, but she can still be a role model for the sport. And then just the kind of next corner I turned was that she did get popular through those, um, those selfies at the New York half. And turned it into something about being a newbie runner and body positivity. Those are important things, but that's not how she got popular. She got popular for this stupid stunt at the half, you know, taking pictures of the guys. A lot of people have said, what would it be like if it was a man who had done that? You know, taking pictures of hot women and captioning them and, you know, he would never be given a platform to speak. He wouldn't be given an endorsement. So, I'm still a fan um, or I wouldn't say a fan but I I do think that she has a voice that deserves to be heard and if people like it I think overall her message and contribution to the running community uh, is positive
0: I can dig that but this is a complicated story Mm -hmm. first question I have just because it's the most basic is is it abandoning to jump in a race without a bib even if you're only running part of it with a friend because I've done it Kelly mm-hmm. uh, Kelly was called out for two of the three times she did it for mm-hmm. that very reason for not you know for just simply running part of
1: a race. Mm-hmm. Is that banditing? Is it wrong, Steve? No, I'm a race director have been a race director will continue to be a race director. no if you stand up on a starting line without a bib to start a race, take advantage of the water stops, the camaraderie, the people around you, the courses, all the things that that's cost money to produce and then decide to step away from the finish line a couple of yards or a half a mile before the finish, that's banditing, and in my opinion, it's bullshit. You shouldn't do it, um, but I don't think that somebody jumping in in a marathon and running five or six or seven miles with a group of people to help them is banditing. I, I'm not saying that I'm an authority on race directing. I'm not, but I am, but I have been in this community for a long, long time. I've run many races i bandited a few as well. I don't think any of us here today could say banditing should – people should be tarred and feathered, hung from the rafters, and spit and pissed upon because they are banditing a race, right? But I do think that when you – at this point in time, at this day and age, when you choose to utilize a race for your own selfish purposes without paying for that, and I think a lot of that is is where the road clo- – where the road closures, are there water stops, are these other things happening? Then I think there's a problem with it, but I don't if you don't utilize the water stops, if you roll through they're, they're, it's a different scenario. So I don't think Kelly, I do think there's a little bit of a gray area about buying a number on Craigslist because the money's not going to that race and now you're utilizing all those things. There's a nebulous gray area there that I think is I think there's a little more reason for frustration in that regard as a race director, knowing that those dollars didn't go to the production of that race they went to somebody else's pocket who paid for it but then i think guess what the other person paid for it so that bibs accounted for it's it's complicated yeah plus i think in that the
0: first situation you're not able to tie that bib to a person and their emergency contact information so if something happened to you on the race course that could be a problem but i agree with you if you're just jumping in to help friends come on that's not abandoning But I got to say, PSA, don't buy people's bibs and run races. Just register yourself. Mm -hmm. And if a race is sold out, you missed it. Register early next time. Because one, if you're going to toe the line, just have your own legitimate result. (laughs) It's like I would never want my result listed under someone else's name on a race. Two, for the reason I just mentioned, which is that you want to be able to tie your emergency contact information. So if something happened to you... On the race course, they can get to that information. It happened in Austin at the Run for the Water. Guy collapses on the course. He was wearing somebody else's bib. They couldn't get in contact with his next, you know, whoever his emergency contact was to notify them that something was wrong, and and that became a problem. So, that's another reason. But also, you know, just own it. If you're going to be on a starting line, own it with your own bib and. And by the way, support the races that you're signing up Mm -hmm. for, because if it's local or otherwise, they're going to have beneficiaries, etc. It's like, just pay your due and support the running community. So don't buy bibs. Register yourself. I do agree with that. And certainly don't run start to finish in a race. If you do jump in and help your
1: friends, don't take. Gatorade and water from the course. You didn't pay give, for that. Give a donation to the to the charity that's participating, that's mm-hmm. putting that on, who that money might go to otherwise. There's lots of ways to give back. R- b- volunteer for a part of the race and then jump in and run. I mean, there's ways to give back, but it's obvious that Kelly was utilizing that platform of the New York half yeah. for her own selfish reasons. It, maybe it turned out that she didn't set it up for that. It turned into it. But ultimately, I don't think there's a whole lot here about, I think the bigger issues here are sort of everyone's reactions, which is super mm-hmm. interesting to me. Yeah. How people are acting, reacting, choosing sides, picking places. And to me, for that reason, this is a reasonably interesting story. Most interesting to me is the head of marketing at Wazelle decided to throw a, 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 a sort of a... a a bone Kelly's way Or at least to support her In the sense of saying Hey banditing's been done Look at all the women in the wo- women who didn't have The right to run And in the past And so banditing is kind of cool And they used a hashtag Bobby Gibb was a bandit Or Bobby was a bandit I'm sorry That's fucking terrible <laughs> taste That's absolutely uncalled for And that kind of attitude Says to me I'm not really interested In being a Wazell supporter And I've been a big fan Of Sally and the Wazelle brand But the head of marketing Decides to go that route that's now you just took who I think is one of the queens of the sport and you're you're rolling her over and that's that's bad. That's that's bullshit. I agree, but I, I take a, a more
0: sympathetic position. Having seen Megan Murray's responses on Twitter after posting that, she took down the tweet. I just saw the first one. So she, in, in my, she defense, did take yeah. down the tweet. She has been apologetic. She realized she overstepped. Mm-hmm. Well, and, it was they, and,
2: uh, she tweeted that from her personal account, and then Wazell post retweeted it, and right. so it was a really just um, likely you don't want to go there if that's your right. you know you can't say oh this is our employee's opinion not ours and then actually go in. It. It.
0: <laughs> yeah, so there were issues there But I'm not going to crucify her for it mm-hmm. I think she realizes she made a mistake I think Wazelle realizes they made some mistakes In all of the support of her Because they didn't initially mm-hmm. come out And kind of denounce banding as a part of it They're still supporting Kelly And have now sort of denounced banditing And have backpedaled a little bit On some of their positions One but
2: more note about Meg um, She actually did post an p- apology uh, It was fairly detailed On the Volet social media platform and I left a comment like this was really good would you consider sharing it publicly and then I haven't heard back I think she was on vacation or something but it was so interesting I was like if you're gonna post that here why wouldn't you just say that share it she did tweet
0: a shorter apology
2: maybe yeah but
0: anyway I do think this you know in addition to the banning it shines a, a bigger issue about debate and dialogue in our country in general and how we need to all be more forgiving <laughs> that we're all living in the gray and yet we want mm-hmm. everything to be black and white or we want to choose sides or assign blame or whatever it may be so my t- one of my takeaways from this is just one listen do your own research before you jump into a discussion so that you have an informed opinion but to also be way more forgiving of everybody in the midst of all of it because we're all gonna say things and do things that, you know, we may regret ultimately, but it doesn't mean we're bad people or that we're coming to it from a bad perspective. So my takeaway with Wazelle, with Meg, with Aisha, with Kelly even, who has been pretty defined in some of these forums, is hey it's all good i think we're all fighting the same fight we all want running to be a bigger part of our you know our culture and and to build community around running so let's stop fighting each other and just kind of do a group (laughs) hug and agree (laughs) that you know what we're all in this together so it's okay we've made some mistakes along the way so that's where i lean on it at the end of this is love me some waselle I'm not Mm going to go seek out Kelly's blog, but I can support her as somebody who's a voice in this sport.
1: And of course she won't get on this podcast though. No, she probably
0: won't. And of course, Derek Murphy, shout out to that guy who's doing great work calling out cheats in our sport. So Mm -hmm. I've got love for everybody as my resolution. What about you guys?
2: I do think Wazell just likes to, uh, kind of rile people up. I think that's something that we like about them. They've done that a lot. Pointing fingers at Nike. Um, So kind of having it, having that directed back at ourselves feels uh, pretty uncomfortable, but I think that they like, I mean, yeah, just like they, they like kind of stirring it up and saying, Hey, Volé, you don't like that. Kelly is a muse for us. Well, guess what? She's not only a muse, but she's paid and we're going to call her or Sally in her quote personal opinion, Uh, you know, CEO seems like personal opinion is probably the same thing as views of your company. (laughs) <laughs> um, that uh, Kelly is a quote pro athlete and right. I think she just likes to she likes to piss people off so I kind of felt like I got punked
0: <laughs> you got trolled <laughs> yeah well if you're gonna dish it out you got to be able to take it and they're taking mm-hmm. a little
1: bit of it now and that's okay we know about that at Rogue right Steve we know a lot <laughs> about that I do one thing one thing my only one takeaway is I'm mostly interested in if other people found this interesting because when I first heard about it, I was like, much ado about nothing, meh, meh, nah, meh. Nah. And then I, Chris made me realize, hey, there's a real story here, and then listening to Kate talk about it, there is a story here, but it's much better if more than three people are dialoguing about it. Yep. So let us know if you are interested in this topic. We'll revisit it and keep checking it. If it's not of interest... Believe me, the de- second half of this interview is going to be completely different. If one is the s- sister fest, <laughs> the next one's going to be the bro fest. So, <laughs> you know, Not you get your half and half. bro fest. <laughs> <laughs> so, with that, we will wrap our intro.
0: As Steve said, do give us feedback, comment on our Facebook page, share us, share comments via email at Chris at Rogue Running, or you can also just use the contact form on our website, which goes right to me. So, with that. We'll stop that part and then transition to our discussion with Adam. So Adam Daly is here. As I mentioned, he may be the most accomplished male Austin runner that you've never heard of. (laughs) Adam grew up locally, competed in cross country in high school, was a podium finisher, two-time podium finisher in state cross country. Ran into a buzzsaw of the Hauser brother twins that we talked about in our last episode with Coach Barnett otherwise may have been a cross-country champion went to arkansas he was a state champion though too in the 32 adam d- I was i, I, d- I neglected yep. to mention that yeah, was a state he champion. went on to run in arkansas was a five-time all-american i believe including uh, having a couple of sec 10k titles went on to run and the olympic trials 10k was 12th in the country at the 10k at one point mm-hmm. Then went on to start his own business called Ludus Tours, which is a running travel company, which we'll talk in detail about. And then after that, became an author, wrote a book called How to Run Away from Home and Bring Your Family with You. Talk about that. He's now also started three businesses, three other businesses since running away from home and just recently qualified for Boston with basically no training running in San Diego. So we're going to get to all of it. We're going to start at the very beginning with you Adam how did you get into running how did it become a thing for you
3: I mean I would say I got started probably in junior high just because I you know we you do everything at that age you do basketball you do football you do track and somehow I just kept winning in track and I had this interesting strategy in ju- junior high where I would take the lead and I just wouldn't give it up yeah. so someone would try and pass me and I would sprint for as long as it took <laughs> to hold them off and people kept telling me you'll never, you'll never, you know, you'll never really exceed in this sport with that, you know, the way you run. But it's kind of fun to watch. So <laughs> that's kind of when it started in junior high, I think.
0: So you had pre-style
3: early on, something like that. Just didn't know any better.
0: <laughs> but then you kept going into high school and had a lot of success there. What kept you in the sport?
3: You know, I think uh, again, you know, I joke with people who don't didn't grow up in Texas. I think I got almost more. Glory playing, you know, football on a horrible Austin High team than I did from winning state championships in track, but uh, but ultimately it was pretty pretty clear from an early age in high school that this was going to be a sport that could take me some way more interesting places than anything else I was doing at that point.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it's <clears throat> it's interesting how you your experience at the high school level was a little unconventional, though, Adam. I mean, you you came at this thing um had a high school coach that was a football coach basically correct correct yeah and uh and but i i was working at Runtex, um which is the the original running store in austin and that's where i first met you and i remember you were sitting there working on the floor sometimes just soaking in the energy we just had an interview with coach barnett i don't know if you remember coach Barnett barnett from luling sitting on the s- stadium seats yeah. sort of listening to us talk the whole time we just talked about that recently tell us a little bit about how you're sort of what got you into running culture i mean beyond just the idea of running and being competitive and winning things which obviously is important but sort of what about the ethos of the running culture maybe even central texas or austin running at the time that that caught your fancy
3: yeah i mean definitely more in that high school period i started becoming a student of the sport you know working at run techs and it was like you had the the you know, recent greats, you know, and you had the old has-beens and you had everything in between. And I was around, I mean, I remember I got a job at Runtex as a freshman or sophomore in high school and thought, man, they don't even have to pay me to come here. This is amazing. <laughs> I'm All I'm doing is hanging out with runners, talking about running. All, I literally wore running shorts to work, which is, you know, kind of a geeky thing to do. But I remember <laughs> doing that, you know, and someone saying like, why are you wearing running shorts to work? And it was just, it, was, but it was a great Period of my life where I could soak it in and I could learn from a lot. I, I mean, I had a lot of mentors as well in the, in that period of my life for sure.
1: Yeah, give us a little bit of an uh, an idea about what the Austin running scene was in the in the early mid '90s when you were um, working at Runtex at that that first time.
3: Man, Austin running scene. I mean, obviously, like you were you were kind of leading the charge, and I you know. Steve was almost like a little mini celebrity. The first time I met him, I'm like, whoa, there's Steve Sisson, you know. <laughs> and I started hanging out with them, and it was like, whoa, Steve Sisson, the runners coming over to my house to look at CDs, and we're gonna <laughs> hang out, you know. So, that I mean, obviously, you. Were, I think you were kind of stealing the scene at that point, you know. In terms of high school, there weren't a ton of guys I had to look up to. I actually had a teammate, ironically, win state when I was a freshman, so I did have that. But he was he was kind of a I wouldn't say a flash in the pan, but I didn't really. I didn't really understand the sport enough to really, for that to impact me as much as, you know, hanging out with guys like you, with Paul Corozo, with with you know, people who, you know, were impactful and had knowledge, and then you know, you guys, you know, telling me the stories as well was was pretty <laughs> pretty impactful.
0: So, at some point, Steve became your coach, at least at some level. Steve mentioned you had a high school football coach, essentially as your running coach. I can't imagine he was deep in the in the history of the nah. sport and training principles so at some nah. point you kind of became de facto coached by steve and paul i believe to some extent as well
3: how did your training change once they got involved i mean so ultimately my coach was a you know about a about a 290 pound black former linebacker who just was <laughs> like adam you keep winning you don't i don't care what you do you know? <laughs> just show up at the meets tell me which events you're going to run and when and we're good you know and so it was one of those things I did I took a lot from from you know I had a coach Jeff Stewart for my first half of high school and then Paul Carroza for a few years and then for you know and then Steve and I'm learning all the all the time you know all I was doing is learning but ultimately I was trying different things and at one point I think I was even working out with with Paul Carroza and his group in the morning and then for, for a little period, I remember some coach or something, for some reason I had to show up to afternoon practices and I was doing, you know, two a days and I would just jog the workouts in the afternoon with the, you know, my teammates basically.
0: What, what kind of mileage were you running then out of curiosity?
3: I think, I, I mean, first half of high school, I was probably, you know, 30 to 40 type of mileage. And then, you know, I remember starting to get more like 50, And I'm sure I hit 60 you know I I don't really remember but I I remember kind of geeking out that I started doing running more and almost having the the guys my influencers guys like Steve being like whoa 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 there's no there's slow down there's no (laughs) need to go start running you know more mileage type of thing
0: and at the state level for cross country you ran into the Hauser brothers again we talked about them last week they kind of owned the state for a few years you finished third one year and then second the next the cross-country level what was it like competing against those guys
3: uh it sucked basically Um, (laughs) i mean i mean so they had three they had another guy who was like the scrub right the number three guy on the (laughs) team but was you know third or fourth or fifth or in state he was a footlocker finalist so there were four of us two years in a row that made that made footlocker top 32 guys in the country and three from one team and me you know so uh it was it was hard you know cause when i have a great race i'd get first or sec- i actually i don't i don't think i ever beat them all in cross country so if i have a great race i get second if i have a bad race i got fourth you know <laughs> i've got fourth a couple of times and had them all run past me
0: so it was one on 3 yeah
3: and but it was races. it was it was great i mean i didn't know the benefit of running against competition like that till as i look back on it now like like as as you guys have mentioned those guys were some of the best collegiate runners ever and so having them to compete with they were you know they were rivals, and I didn't really have any kind of rivalries other than those guys, so it was kind of cool. You know, I wouldn't see them that often, You know, once, twice, three times a season.
1: So your transition to the collegiate game. Um, tell us a little bit about what decisions you had in terms of what your options were in terms of what col- colleges you could have gone to, what universities, and sort of maybe what your decision-making process was. We, we have a couple of high school kids that listen to this podcast, and they're probably thinking about, that transition what what was your experience like I mean ultimately
3: you know I probably I mean I could have think gone anywhere I wanted I kind of had a free ticket to go wherever I wanted and it was one of those things like I visited Stanford I visited Georgetown Notre Dame Colorado Arkansas so it's always surprises people when I tell people those schools that I ended up choosing Arkansas but I I have to frame it in context I'm like no Arkansas was a really good running (laughs) school at the time And that's all. I I mean, as an 18 year old ambitious male athlete, all they really cared about was how fast can I run? I didn't really care about grades or how that might affect me professionally 20 years from now or the network I'd be making from a, you know, from a Harvard type of situation. But, uh, I wanted to run as fast as I could and people hearing from people like you, hearing from other people who are influencers, it was like, There was no other place than Arkansas. I mean, so it was like I took those recruiting visits, but I knew I was going to Arkansas. I knew I had to test my chops against, you know, the best. And I knew if I went somewhere else, I'd I'd always wonder.
1: You know, 10 years later, you would have chosen Colorado instead of Arkansas as that is an option. But at that time, Arkansas was the place to be. Talk a little bit about Coach Mack. I don't know about that. Well, (laughs) I don't know about that either. But talk about Coach Mack. Tell us a little bit about who he is and um, what he meant to you and, and maybe to a lot of other young Arkansas yeah. athletes and sort of the man he was, and and the coach he is.
3: Yeah, I mean, ultimately, you know, I'd I, like I said, I've read a lot. I've been coached by a lot of different styles, and what, what the amazing thing about Coach McDonald was the simplicity of it all. You know, he had yeah between track and cross country he had a dozen workouts maybe you know and it was just sure. bread and butter five times a mile do them hard like it wasn't <laughs> recover for three minutes and on oh, the fourth one we're going to recover for two minutes then we're going to sprint the last two i mean it was just you know three times two miles you know 16 times a quarter up and down a hill it was just simplicity and he was a great 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 motivator mm-hmm. and everyone who went to arkansas went to arkansas not because of the beautiful scenery of northwest arkansas but because of coach McDonald, and no one really regretted that so
0: he won forty, I think, as the count He's is now. He won forty-two or three, <laughs> yeah. but they forty- keep stealing <laughs> them power as, as the count is now. <laughs> Were you on any of those national title teams?
3: Yeah, nine of them. Nine of them. Wow. Yeah. So we won. I I, I tell people. So I, as an athlete, I kind of get to cheat because I have three chances to win a national championship in college, right? right? I mean, I have indoor, outdoor, and cross country. So we have I have twelve opportunities to win national title, and we won not. I won. We won the triple crown one year, and then I won two out of three the the other three what was
0: that like i know oregon the women just recently won the triple crown which is a big deal doesn't happen very often what is that like what's it like being on a team like that in track and field
3: you know it's an interesting question because there's a lot you can learn from it one of the more interesting parts of it is i look at pictures of ourselves getting second at nationals and every there's a, there's seven guys standing on a podium looking at their shoes like like they're <laughs> like somebody in the family just died you know <laughs> like so sad and I'm like oh, it's a shame we couldn't enjoy that moment you know what I mean so the expectations were high yeah. I mean the the three times we lost one of them we kind of deserved to lose and the other two were brutal like Stanford beat us by three points i think or something like that i mean it was, and it, was no, and it was the hauser brothers it was again and, and one of them was like literally my fault and i yeah. still it still hurts <laughs> <me>. it's still <laughs>
0: my still holding it still holding it so you sure. remember more the ones you lost than the uh, ones absolutely. you won, for sure that's interesting wow so,
1: so coach mcdonald you just said he only had a couple of workouts tell us a little bit about what his motivational style was if you can kind of distill it quickly into 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 a, a thing because it's we on this podcast and many people out there think about coaches and they always think about the X's and O's, right? They always think about what the actual workout was, what the recovery was, all the things you just indicated. But coach Mack wasn't about that. I mean, he was to a point, if something's going wrong,
3: he would get out the journals and look, or if the team was in a funk and he's like, all right, let me get this out. Let's look. Cause he, w- he kept a detailed journal and he'd get everybody's time from the workout. But ultimately, I, I mean, when you needed a pep talk, you went into coach's office and you came out, you know, 20 minutes later feeling like you could conquer the world. Mm. And we had a bad meet over the weekend; the whole team would run bad or something, and he'd yell at us, you know, and he'd yell at us. It wasn't, <laughs> I mean, it was. He, w- he could not have been a women's coach um, <laughs> and, and maybe he could not even have existed in the, the landscape that we have today with every social media and everything. But he'd yell at us after a meet and he'd be like, go run, you know, and it's weights and eight. Everyone's supposed to go easy. And the slowest guy on the team's running 42 minutes for eight miles or something crazy up there. You know, so it's he was motivating in a, you know, light a fire under you, but also like you can do this, you know, and you wanted to do it for the team.
1: Technically sound, but tougher than tough,
3: tougher than tough the only man i feared probably other than my dad to (laughs) this day
0: (laughs) plus he's he created a culture of excellence there i think as you mentioned the expectations were high so everybody expected when they came to arkansas that you were going there to win the national title and run with the best in the world so i think part of it was that culture
3: absolutely and you and we had guys that were world-class runners that would want to triple conference because they they see that as the legacy and they see like look all the guys before me have done this and i want to follow in those footsteps i want to score you know 28 points for the team it wasn't like oh the coach is asking me because he needs you know my points it was like this is what i want to do for the team so coming out of that to
0: then moving into a post collegiate running environment we came back to austin from what i understand started working at Runtex.
3: I, I took a indirect route to that. I, I mean, okay. I ran kind of professionally a little bit, then I moved to Spain for a couple of years, and then moved back to Austin. You and worked
1: with uh, Formula One, right? Is that with MotoGP? MotoGP, yeah. yeah. So,
0: how did that transition to post-collegiate work and running play out for you?
3: I mean, out uh, of college, we we had you know some contract offers that weren't that didn't involve very, very much you know dollar signs it was more equipment based type of stuff and maybe we could have made a little money and so we kind of opted like i said to go to spain and completely took off running for a couple of years and then moved back to austin in 2002 and that's where it was we were working at run we we're working in the running industry and i was like i still have something left in me so i, I started picking it up back then and that's when you know, I convinced Steve to come back to run Tex and it's like we're putting the band
1: back together. <laughs> come on, let's do this. So talk speaking of the band, let's 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 bring in our bass player, Jessica, right? The one who keeps it all steady. So tell us a little bit about um, your wife, Jessica, how you met her and um, sort of because she is, in my opinion, inarguably the greatest distance runner to come out of central Texas ever, in my opinion. That's that's with I would even put her up against Leo in that regard. Leo has the medal, right? But Jess is her dominance at the high school level, her dominance at the college level. Tell us a little bit about Jessica Cook slash knee Jessica Daly-Knee Cook, right?
3: Yeah, so, I mean, I was a five-time All-American. Jessica was a 12-time All-American. I was typically 7th to 10th at NCAA. She was typically 3rd to 5th, so she liked to always be just enough better (laughs) than me. But (laughs) she she came out of Round Rock. I think she... Won cross country, I want to say three times, and she won track. You know, uh, whatever, however many there are possible times. Yeah. I mean, a lot. You know, she w- as a freshman, she mm-hmm. won you know uh, some titles, and then she just kept winning. And so we met through that. You know, we met in we met in ninety three through run Runtex training groups. You know, <laughs> at six in the morning or whatever, uh, and then we started dating in ninety four. You know, twenty three years ago, and and uh, have you know, she's been. Uh, a good partner in, in in many ways, for sure. So, But she was, yeah, absolutely a, a dominating high school runner, for sure.
1: Yeah. So talk a little bit about your experience at Runtex when you came back. You were there as a as a whippersnapper, a, sort of a, a, a nip at the heels kind of guy, helping everybody do everything, but a high school kid. Mm-hmm. You go to the University of Arkansas. You have great success there. Um, you go to Europe, have great success there, starting to get involved in business. You got an MBA, I believe, from Arkansas as well. Yep. Is that correct? Yep. So you're moving in the business world you're looking at opportunities what brought you back brought you back to Austin and and talk a little bit about your experience
3: i mean a, a little bit of it is that kind of romanticizing where you're from and you know wanting to move back and seeing the things that were happening in Austin and seeing the things that were happening with people i did my mba with and the the moves they were making where i was in spain i had a cool job but i wasn't really making any money and i, I kind of you know, had a little bit of FOMO. Like, what am I missing? So, moved back to Round Rock, and I, you know, Paul Carozza, you know, big dreamer, and you know, <laughs> had lots of vision of what things could be. And you know, we're going to be the next GSDM. We're also we're going to be the next Nike. We're going to be the next this. And I was like, man, I love it. I love the vision. I, I you know, I, I buy into
1: it. Um, and it was boom boom at that time in Austin, yeah. Texas, with Runtex. It was boom boom. It was big time.
3: It was. It was. And so it was a, you know, it it was apparent from. I don't know. From a month or two after starting the job, it <laughs> wasn't it wasn't what we thought it was, but it was also like it wasn't that hard either. And it was like you get to hang out with a lot of friends and you know do crazy stuff. And it was a, it was an interesting point of our life, I think, to to be in Runtex in that you know whatever that was, two thousand two, two thousand three, two thousand four period.
0: The kind of beginning of the end in a lot of ways. <laughs> it took about ten years to end, but.
3: R- the, the writing was on the, the wall from yeah. from, I wouldn't say an early outset, but there was, there were there were a lot of issues, and but but that being said, I mean, there were those were from 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 my perspective, my seat, those were management issues. You know, I was I was doing what I wanted to do and or trying,
1: you know. So I was recently interviewed by Austin Monthly uh, on an article about Paul. I don't know if you got a chance to I, read my that. My dad forwarded that to me, um, but I haven't read it. Yet. <laughs> but uh, I stated in there that uh, in that article um, that i thought the willie nelson 10k yep. that happened was the begin the the pinnacle but also the beginning of the end um it was also a hell of a party i think if you remember that i was, was just it, talking about that like it was two a, nights ago. it was a hell of a party it was. um but i i talk a little bit about you're an entrepreneur now and a serial entrepreneur i would say did paul rub off on you there your dad is also an entrepreneur he's mm-hmm. a he's in the he started his own debt company with a good friend of his right yeah where did you get the entrepreneurial bug and then um chris will probably tee you up a little bit to talk about ludus so tell us a little yeah. bit of how you got that entrepreneurial bug i mean i think
3: obviously paul had that those chops and i learned from him and i also learned i mean it was one of those things like you know nothing personal against like paul but it was like there were things i was seeing and doing i was making promises and as, as an employee that i wasn't able to execute on you know because things were holding me back. So when I became an entrepreneur was like, look, when I promise X and Y, I'm going to give it to you because I, the buck stops here. Whereas as as an employee, I had constantly promised, yeah, we're going to give you this. And then just the rug got pulled out from under me. And that was a frustrating experience as an employee.
0: So how did you start Ludus then? At what point did that vision come to you? And what was the segue from Runtex to that?
3: Yeah. So, I mean, I ran in the Olympic trials in 2000 and in about 2002 got offered from USA track and field. Here's the opportunity to buy a bunch of Olympic tickets right at face value. And so I thought, Oh, this sounds interesting. I've got a couple thousand dollars in my account. And, uh, and I said, I should buy some tickets tickets always sell right the olympics <laughs> so i turned to my office mate mr <laughs> sisson i was like i got this cool business opportunity how many how many tickets do we want to buy for the olympics and that's we, how
1: he phrased it too yeah. it literally wasn't are you interested in joining me in this venture it was how many tickets do you want to buy <laughs> yeah
3: so so we chucked down i don't even remember i think i would say it was between four and six thousand yeah. dollars worth of tickets
1: if i remember, it was like. Two, I think I was two or three, and you were two or three in that ballpark range. Yeah, Yeah.
3: and then we, and then we, I think we forgot about it for about a year, and then uh, so maybe two thousand three, and then you know
1: you know. Then my sphincter puckered. Yeah. Well, that was
3: later. And then a year later, Steve's like, we're, we're joking or we're drinking or I don't know what the, the the particular situation was, but he's like, you should go to Greece and figure out a way we can make, you, you should make this happen. Go to Greece. I have a credit card with the $25,000 limit. I did. Make it, make it, make it rain. <laughs> go take my credit card and we'll figure out how you're going to make us some money. And so that was kind of how the actual business got started. So I went over there with Steve's credit card and, and hung out in Greece for about a month and, and <laughs> so
0: you started with Athens Olympics basically scalping
3: tickets kind of I mean it started with tickets but I realized ticket I didn't know anything about tickets so I was like I got a couple of these with hotel rooms so I went over and found a hotel room and put a $17,000 deposit on Steve's credit card <laughs> um, and that was the start of like uh, we're going to package these because I looked at track and field news and what they were selling and it was it was kind of crappy it was overpriced and their hotel was like an hour outside of town i'm like oh, i can we can do better than this yeah so uh, you
1: also had access to one of the most important <laughs> and critical like groups of people who want to go to the olympics and yeah. that you had the athletes and you as you and Jess as former athletes had the ear of the athletes still at that time cuz you had 2000 you were at the trials, two thousand four. They're still in your friend yep. groups. There's still people you know. Those people qualifying for the games.
3: I, I knew every, almost every single Olympian by by name. Right. I mean, so by first you name.
1: had you also. And their their families need to go somewhere. They yep. don't trust the Greece's – the Greece's any and the random travel coordinator and anybody from Greece. So talk a little bit about that experience of having those folks. A tie into that, and how you felt like that made the business effective.
3: I mean, that eventually w- was the business. Eventually, it was was taking care of athletes and their families because it is this one group that U.S. Olympic Committee just completely forgets about. They don't care about uh, track is n- unique in that their trials are so late, but they're not that unique. I mean, swimming similar, you know, gymnastics is similar. Like most of these athletes are finding out less than a month that they're going to the Olympics and. And the U.S. Olympic Committee doesn't care about the families. And so we saw that as a big opportunity early on uh, with track specifically. I'm like, I know, you know, Tim Brough's parents and I know Shalane's family and I know all these people I, that I can connect with and that I can just they'll trust me because I'm in their world. Um, and that extended pretty quickly to winter sports and, and, and throughout, you know, now, obviously, no one's heard of me, you know, in, in that world. <laughs> like um, so uh
0: so you had a good run as ludus tours basically helping people get to major events started with the olympics but you extended to other events as well talk about the rise and then ultimate fall of that business and what you learned along the
3: way i mean so yeah we we i was the typical entrepreneur who just kind of rode rode the wave like you said and rode it high and uh did really well for a long time i mean and moved to italy after i lived in greece then moved to germany and then moved to vancouver canada for a while And just would move and set up these camps basically uh wherever the olympics were taking place and and just you know like a like a gambler take my chips and i'm like (laughs) all right i made a bunch let me take you know a little bit off the table and put it all back on this is gonna be good (laughs) and so you know and i think you can see where this is probably going but eventually you know it all it all kind of blew up in london 2012 and i saw it coming at like the olympic trials i mean i i i went to the 2008 trials and i still believe i still think of that as like one of the best experiences of my life you know i was making a ton of money i had one daughter and she had a great experience there we were hanging out we were sharing a flat with uh with Steve and Ruth, and it was like one, this beautiful experience of barbecuing, drinking beer, making money, and then four going years going to the later, Wild Duck. <laughs> was it Wild Duck? <laughs>
1: I don't know. It's Wild it Duck like, now. What was
3: Vilarde's or oh,
1: something. oh, Velar, Street, which yeah. turned into the Wild Duck, okay, I think. Okay. But yeah, so <clears throat> London, um, and and success. You know, Chris and I are entrepreneurs. We're in this business. We've recently had our brushes with fear fear and loathing had moments right you talk a little bit about i the experience at 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 london i don't want you to go necessarily into all the full and bloody details but how did ludus go from on top to having trouble so you said you knew there was a little bit of challenge at the olympic trials but that's that's not more than a month and a half before the actual olympic games and um you know your the way that you were your business worked was you purchased in advance uh-huh. tickets and you purchased in advance hotel rooms or made commitments for hotel rooms which were basically at the and the blocks that you did they were they were financial commitments you were signing contracts yeah, that you were responsible for so talk, tell, tell us how that played out and why it was that Ludus wasn't able what happened what happened in blended I mean, that didn't happen in you in know, before that
3: ultimately i just i was You know, there's there's a book called The E-Myth that talks about, you know, the business and most entrepreneurs are work too much on the business versus in the business or, or vice versa. Right. And I was working. I had gone from being in the business to working on the business. And I was working on hiring and recruiting and motivating and core values and going to conferences and talking biz dev. But I wasn't selling and I was I didn't have my finger on the pulse. I didn't see what was selling. So I just I just wasn't I took my eye off the ball. And ultimately, it just you know overbought. Didn't understand the market that well. I wasn't in London. I had an office in London with two employees, and never went and visited them. And if I would have went to visit them, I'd have seen there's a hotel on every block in London. Yep. You know, I you know. And ultimately, what I tell people is, I'm like the opening night, opening ceremonies. I lost sixty thousand dollars, <laughs> and you know that night for the London Olympics, and then I did it again for the next seventeen nights. <laughs> so,
1: <laughs> wow. <laughs> wow. <laughs> But when I, I I just have to pub my give a little love to one of my really good friends. I don't know that I I was around him at that time. We'd had we've had Adam and I have had our ups and downs as friends over over time for sure. The success, the time we got to spend with him in two thousand twelve at the trials was so amazing, right? Oh, that was oh eight that we yeah. spent all that time together. But we it it watching you in that process and going through those struggles, I I felt so strongly that um, our world is not fair It's and it never will be fair if you don't know that already from as an athlete we talk to athletes about it not being fair and whether it is right it just is what it is but it's not fair and yet somehow from that space you turned this experience into um, freedom into a completely different world that is um, you're in control of you have the ability to manipulate and manage to the best of your ability but you're in control so how do you go from those those bottom that that space we saw you in at that time to to where you are now i'm mean, I, i'm not asking you to give me the whole play out of an entire 5 year period but tell us a little bit about how that said low how do you climb back up
3: i mean for me it was just I needed to figure some things out personally. And so that's where kind of, I started with the idea of like, maybe I should take this trip and that, that honestly was where it was. I, after that, I, you know, I had offers to buy the business and sell, you know, sell to this guy or sell to this guy. And sell, you know, and none of them were great deals. You know, I had offers to buy the business in 2010 that were, gr- that were good deals. And I was like, no way I'll, I'll do better on my own. So ultimately I'd moved back here to Austin in 2013 and was, was kind of miserable. I didn't really like the life I was living. And so I, I knew I needed a change, but I knew I didn't know what that change was. And so I, I, I was you know, sitting on a flight looking at the destination map, you know, and in one of those airline magazines. And I'm like, this is this is what I should be doing. I should be traveling. And so I realized, like, if I could travel with the same monetary outlay, basically, for those for an, a certain amount of time that I was spending in my current life, I could I could at least get a life experience out of it, show my kids something, and so for me it was taking the pause and traveling was a big big thing. So You talking about
1: schools and mortgages and uh, all the other pe- all the all the thing car payments, all those other things. You took a you took a pause on that.
3: I was I was spending so much money, not saving a dime, and it was like one of those things like, you know, I think I, I, my my after taxes check was like ten thousand dollars a month, and I'm like. If you handed me this amount of cash on the first of every month and I go, how, how would you like to live your life for the next 30 days? There's no way I would pick the life I'm living, right? Hmm. And the, the follow-up question is, well, what life would you pick? And I'm like, 10 Gs? i freaking travel. I can live like a king <laughs> for the next 30 days on 10 Gs. So that, that kind of led to the hypothesis. Like, I bet I can live cheaper traveling the world than I do in my normal life, paying for daycare and paying for insurance, pay for cable, paying for gas, pay, you know, all the things that, that add up and we just think are normal.
0: And you had four kids at the time under seven, right? What were their ages?
3: Uh, When we started the trip, my oldest was six, yeah. Six, four, three, and one.
0: Wow. So you decided to travel the world for a year. Yep. You've now written a book about it, which we already mentioned. How did that play out from that decision to from looking at the destination map to, okay, leaving on that first destination i think you went to costa rica first so take us with that prep that prep time where you're unleashing all of these sort of connections in this world in austin to go into costa rica and checking out
3: i mean uh, for us it was just kind of like which destinations do we choose that connect that that we have some kind of connection with we'd been to costa rica you know we we went to vancouver for five weeks because we'd lived in vancouver so we were picking places that resonated with us on a personal level this tr- the trip wasn't about anything other than us you know personally but we had you know we had a lot of baggage going into it you know i had my you know i had a lot of financial baggage i had uh A Brazilian prison, you know. uh, We're gonna get to that one. We're gonna get to that one. (laughs) (laughs) Save that one up. We're gonna we're gonna make sure that story gets told. It was gnarly. I mean, the whole thing was was not like this. I mean, people and there's all and that's kind of part of what I tell people. Like, there's always a reason not to go. There's always stuff that's gonna come up. Your, you know, your business partner might not get thrown in Brazilian prison, <laughs> but there's gonna be something <laughs> that comes up that's significant, right? But
0: but it wasn't like you were on top of the world. It wasn't like no. you're like in a safe, comfortable position. No. So now I have the flexibility to go do this. For sure. You were admired in a lot of shit, and it was like, okay, I'm and gonna that, do yeah. this.
3: And I cut. I mean, I had four. I was not the super active Facebook guy, but I had 400 Facebook friends, and I cut it down to 150 because I just didn't want the judgment. I'm like, people don't know my story, right? They don't know this is why I'm doing the trip. They, they're going to think, Oh, Adam's rich and he's saving money or he's, he's got all this money and that's what he's spending. And I sold his business, you know? And for me, it wasn't about that. And I just didn't want people who didn't know me who didn't understand. How long did
0: it take to, to actually go from decision to leaving the country?
3: So we, the idea got in my head in January, 2014 and by like March, April, May we were making reservations and we left in August. So we used miles for for the whole thing, for all the big legs. So we had to plan that way in advance. So it was like, especially when you're buying five tickets. So, so you had about eight months more of or less prep. Yeah, of, of, of what did of you
0: have to unravel? Did you have to sell real estate and do that? I'd
3: unravel a ton. I mean, I had to get renters in my place. I had to sell personal possessions. I had to get, you know, cancel these contracts, buy storage for my stuff. Get get, you know, there was a ton that went into it. a lot of work for sure.
1: So the book you wrote. Is really <clears throat> I read it. it was it's a great book it's super interesting I knew most of the stories of um, but it, it's it's really a a guidebook more than anything else it's like a the lonely planet for a person that has adventure in their bones which is most lonely planet people but you give some really specific ideas in the book about how to manage this i think your first point primarily is make the decision right i think that you repeat that repeatedly over and over again talk a little tell us some a little bit about the books uh, that where the genesis for the book came from in the process that were you thinking before you went on the trip perhaps turn it into a book or were you on the trip and saying my experiences of my son locking himself in a bathroom and not being able to get out, and never being able, to, and wondering if we're ever going to be able to get him out? It, did the did the stories create the book in the future, or was the idea on the on the front end to kind of think about that?
3: You know, I get asked that a lot. I don't, I don't remember. I mean, I I, I feel like I've always had a book in me. I was a journalism major in college, so I just you know I knew before the trip actually I knew I wanted to write a book but I just didn't know what the book would be you know and that was one of the things I wanted to do on the trip was spend time writing and 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 reflecting and so you know I think somewhere along the trip I realized like I don't want to write a book about just a general business book or something like that and so I realized more and more people kept asking me about like how'd you do this what was your thought process here how'd you do this how'd you do this and I was like oh you know, and one one of my you know another mentor I ran into when I was traveling in Barcelona was like, no one's ever written a book about taking a year off family sabbatical. You should—that's the book you should write. And I was like, huh, interesting.
0: Yeah. Where did you go first of all? What were what were all the, some of the destinations?
3: You don't have to give them all necessarily, but some of the highlights. Uh, Costa Rica, Vancouver, California, Hawaii, New Zealand, Australia, Thailand, Spain, France. Italy, Germany, Vienna, London, home, nice. San Diego.
0: How did you pull that off with four kids under seven? Because I just finished a trip myself with three under eight. And it's challenging traveling with small children. I can't imagine doing it the way you did it.
3: Yeah, I mean, it's it's hard. And people look at us like, you know, we're a circus act most of the time. <laughs> but kids, are they respond to habit and after two three four months or whatever that time it was like that was their life you know they were they were used to being in a place for one to three weeks you know and they didn't you know they that was their normalcy so uh they were used to moving they were used to if they didn't like a place oh it's okay we'll only be here for a week you know they were used to eating out once a day they were used to hearing different languages so eventually after after the year was over the the younger two didn't remember anything other than traveling which was an interesting Hmm. Concept to explain to them like we're moving we're moving into a home they're like what does that mean you know when we <laughs> right? showed them a couple houses they're like these houses suck there's no <laughs> there's no furniture and we're like no we'll we'll bring our own <laughs> like why would we bring our own furniture explain <laughs> mean, was like explaining that whole thing they you know and it, it's hard to explain that right
0: how has it changed your family as a result
3: I mean ultimately I like to think we're closer because of it and I also like to think that they understand there's a world out there. They understand languages and cultures and things like that. That being said, the two younger ones, like I said, they don't remember specifics. You know, they see a picture and it'll jog their memory. But I like to think that well, at least inherently somewhere in the back of their brain, they know what another language means. Like if they don't know how to speak Spanish, they at least know that language exists, which I don't think as a four-year-old, I, I really understood.
1: But your daughter, Kiara, the oldest, um, I've had who is one of the most precocious and amazing human beings that walks the face of the planet. Every time I'm with her, I think she's probably wiser than I am, Um, which isn't saying much. I (laughs) I understand to all of our listeners out there, but she does. I mean, you, when you spend time with her, if, 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 and jet, probably your second child, um, probably not as much. Um, but your daughter, Kiara, she's, she got it. And when she came back, she's, It's a gift absolute yeah, gift absolutely so w- one question i have for you um two big questions i have for you before we wrap up this 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 interview or i'm gonna poke at you a little bit the most important race that you ever won was the capital 10 k <laughs> right <laughs> <laughs>
3: well i was all i wanted to do was you know <laughs> surpass my mentor really <laughs> so we used to always give why he's saying that is because (laughs) Steve was this accomplished runner and we would, it it, it became the bane of his existence of people would come into Runtex, and he'd, you know, we'd be like, Steve's great. He, you know, got fifth at NCAAs and blah, state champion and this and that, you know, he ran in the world half marathon championships and, Oh yeah, that's nice. Can you lace up my shoe? And we're like, he also won the capital 10. They're like, (laughs) get the hell out of here. (laughs) (laughs) He's captain. Can I, can I take a picture of you? Like it was like, (laughs) celebrity so we'd always give him a hard time and then finally one year I ran it and he was like oh you're going to be in my club I'm gonna <laughs> y- it's, it's, it's over the poking me is over so. I
1: recently got Allison Maxis in that club we got Tia Martinez in that club we, got, is, we got a lot of people in that club it is an
0: interesting phenomenon <laughs> in this city that that <laughs> title totally. makes you the most famous runner in town there that's why Leo has an Olympic medal but is often not totally. recognized on Absolutely. Town Lake Trail but Steve is recognized because <laughs> so, he won the Captain
3: K. <laughs> well, the, f- the, f- the ironic thing even about that race was that I was running against Gilbert, right? And so <laughs> everybody in the race is like, go, Gilbert, beat this random non-Austinite. I'm like, dude, I went to Austin High. Like, no, and I'm, I'm Austin Burundian, to the bone. Yeah. Yeah. He's like, a Burundian.
1: Like, on, he went to a Oblain Christian, <laughs> yeah, and you're like, literally on, an Austinite. <laughs> no respect. No respect. So,
0: <laughs> so that's a good question. One other question as it goes back to the traveling. I did want to get to the Brazilian prison story because I know that's detailed in the book, but give us a little taste of it as a teaser. You did end up in Brazilian prison, but your business partner did as you were on a flight out. What went down with Brazilian prison?
1: Oh,
3: The 35 second version is uh, police raided our hospitality area and said we were involved in illegal activity that include included scalping tickets and selling a ticket for more than face value is illegal in the country of brazil most of the tickets we were selling however were less than face value ironically um for that particular event but this was at the world cup this was at the world cup in 2014. my partner stood up and said i take responsibility i'll go down to the precinct and help you figure it out and i said no problem come with us um, they had guns. I was I was a bit terrified because we had been worried about getting killed in Brazil. Um, and then they started search bags, found, you know, a lot of about thirty thousand dollars of cash in my bag. Uh, and so they wanted me to come. And I was like, I'm not going with you. No way. I haven't done anything wrong. And they're like, you come with me. You get the money back. You stay here. I keep the money. And I had like, you know, a bunch of employees around. And I was like. Okay, I'll go with you. And so I went down to the lobby, and right th- at that moment, a guy robs a bus right in front of the hotel, and all the police jumped on the guy who robbed the bus, threw him in the paddy wagon. They come back, get my partner, and I'm left standing there in the in the hotel lobby. When you and told
1: I, me this story the first time, Adam, actually I read it in an email that you wrote. Yep. Um, it's literally still to this day, it's the greatest story I've ever heard from anybody's <laughs> mouth ever. In an email, it was... You're, an, you're a great raconteur, you can talk with the best of them, but you're also an absolutely phenomenal writer. And that email that you sent, which was basically a, pl- a, a, a plea to anyone to hear the fact that you were feeling so bad for the situation, which we'll talk about a little bit more, and also an indication that um, that shit got really hairy, like really really hairy. Uh so don't tell us the thirty-five-second version. <laughs> let's uh let's move on. Let's let's move on to you standing in the lobby of a Brazilian hotel, bags of money in your hotel room that you had already absconded with and put up in the up in the, and tickets and and it was tickets and money well, they, that you they got they away. Took, right.
3: I mean, they they took a bunch of stuff. They took a bunch of tickets, and so you know. The but next you do, day, like the next five minutes that
1: before that, you taken put money in your hotel room, didn't you? No, it was
3: like I I'd, I'd urged my my business partner uh, to okay. do that, and that was that was the that was the rub. Uh-huh. I was like, you're you're getting too footloose and fancy free here with the way we're dealing. Like, trust me, I know what I'm doing. And so the as we're riding down the elevator, he's like looking at me, going, I'm "Sorry, I'm sorry, you're right. You know, you, I, I I I I'm sorry." And so when we when he goes and I went and everyone drives off and I'm like they kind of forgot
0: about you yes
3: you were left there for a few seconds and I thought as much as I would like to go to the station and get that cash back I think this is probably a sign that I should get the hell out of here so I went I went upstairs got my backpack and and walked away and then about an hour later I got a phone call from who's basically my best friend and my you know VP at that time Rafa uh, Rafa and she said yeah the police are back they want they're they're here for you basically and I'm like (laughs) <laughs> I'm not coming back. Sorry. And they're like, well, they want me to go answer some questions. I'm like, I can't tell you what to do. All I can, all I can tell you with certainty is I'm not coming back there. And so, you know, she ends up basically her and our COO get, they bring them down for a quote unquote questioning. And once they get them down there, they figure out that if you have three people involved, it's uh, it's racketeering in brazil and so it's a it's a bit much bigger deal so they ended up spending a couple of weeks in prison and then about three months uh permanent vacation in brazil after that they were they were let out of prison but they were their passports were held
0: how did they get out of it what was the resolution
3: you know at the end it was one of these things it's kind of funny i mean not funny but in brazil it's not like the u.s where the the prosecutors are held to a certain you know it's, it's they're not held to any certain level of uh, accountability so it was one of those things there was the trial and it was like we we mopped the floor with them at the trial and it was like we're, we're all getting out it, they're gonna probably pay us damages at this point and then it was like the, and then the our side was like cool so we can go we can get our passports back tomorrow right They'll the judge will give their their you know ruling in the next day or so and said no it's it's the prosecution now has a month or something three weeks to turn in their case i are like we just had the trial we don't <laughs> understand this and it was and it, it it continued and then after three weeks the prosecution's like actually i need another week and it was one of those and then after another week it was like the prosecutor's going on vacation for a month huh. and it was like you guys complete no contest and we'll keep all the money that we took and you can go home and all along uh the other two who had done nothing wrong my my coo and my vp had been like we're we're staying we'll stay years to clear our name we will not ever say no contest we will not ever say guilty we did nothing wrong we never touched a ticket and then after three months they were like do whatever we'll sign whatever document <laughs> you <need to> go <laughs> so sign. So we're out of here we're not waiting a month for this guy to go on vacation
0: wow so everybody got out everyone got out so that story's in the book if, if listeners want to hear more. Give us one story from a trip, maybe kid involved, that was kind of crazy or fun.
3: One story. I mean, there were a lot of story. I mean, that, that's the, the magic of travel was, was, yeah, you know, it's like almost the bad things that happen while you travel. And that's kind of what I, I like talking about is like these things that you don't remember sitting on a beach. When nothing goes wrong at a resort, I mean that's not what travel's about. It's about the things that happen. And you know, we, we, uh, one of my favorite stories is this place we stayed in Italy, and it was like a, it was a go-between between torino and Umbria, that we had to choose a place to stay, in between, and we just I picked it out of a hat, looking on Airbnb the night before, and uh, it was one of these places that was, and we pulled in, and it we had no expectations. So i like, I'm sorry, we didn't tell you, but we're having a music festival on the property tonight and (laughs) it's like in my yard basically. And they had music and art and my kids are playing in the yard. This about two acres of a, a yard speaking Italian. It was beautiful. I mean, so ultimately I think travel is about the people and it's about the things that go wrong. Those are what make your story.
0: So when I was, I stayed in an Airbnb at the last Olympic trials last summer at a house where the family had taken a family sabbatical as well they had a 12 and 14 year old they're older now but when they were 12 and 14 they took them out of school for a year and traveled the world hitting some similar destinations that you hit and the house was like a time capsule for that trip and so it was it was odd to look yeah. at it from our perspective looking at pictures and trinkets they bought on the trips and there were news articles posted on the walls about their trip But one of the things that struck me being in that house for the weekend as we were at the Olympic trials was this family, it seemed like their life had stopped at this trip because it was the coolest thing they'd done. Maybe that wasn't true, but that was the impression I got. At least the decorations in their house had stopped changing. That's a little weird now that the kids are like 40 and After that (laughs) trip, their kids are in college now, but... But how do you how do you keep that from being the most epic thing your family has done? So, using that question as a segue to talk about what you're doing now.
3: I mean, u- ultimately, um, you know, my wife documented everything on Facebook. She was one of those people who I like. I told you I cut, you know, seventy five percent of my people on Facebook. She had a different approach where she's like, I'm going to write everything on Facebook because that's my journal. I don't have time to keep a journal, so I'm going to document everything. So it's one of those it one of the benefits that I don't know if we realize that at the point at that point was that there's these memories that come back right every so every single day of the year we're reminded oh here's where we were two years ago type of thing Um, so I, I think it's epic but I also think life is life and it's hard to slow down and and you
1: know Well, one of the things I can tell you is I heard recently not from your f- mouth but through the mouth of the social media world that you're still up to your old tricks though not training for shit <laughs> jumping into races s- somehow killing it so tell us a little bit you just qualify for Boston yep. at at, at uh, the San Diego Marathon which is a couple of weeks ago right yep tell us about your your the intricacies of your training program <laughs> to yes. get ready for
3: that race i did lots of lactate threshold runs <laughs> lots of <and> lots <laughs> of
1: beer <laughs> lots of quality beer work i'm That's, sure you I did that
3: i did i <laughs> drank pretty heavily the thursday before <laughs> and then I, well, didn't. I
1: think getting drunk was part of the reason why you ran the race in the first <laughs> place if i could, uh, if, I, yeah. if I, I, I wasn't there but i if i know you i would guess yeah. that you probably opened your big mouth Uh, and said a few things and someone called you on it so tell us a little bit about why you decided to run the san diego marathon
3: no that's (laughs) basically it i was talking with some running slash drinking buddies and i'm like i would love to run boston because they were all running it they talked about it and i'm like but there's no way i would want to train twice for a marathon i just have no (laughs) interest in training to qualify and then training again i'm like i wonder if i could just you know white knuckle whatever (laughs) and i looked it up 315 whoo (laughs) <laughs> but i'm like I, I i'm like maybe and so then they all became super interested in the the conversation so that became the conversation for about <laughs> a week and we only i only decided about a week 10 days before and then one of them was like i'll pay your entry fee I, I, oh just that's for it the, it's just over for, <laughs> just for the <laughs> entertainment adam purposes. daly and someone <laughs> pays his entry <laughs> <Exactly>. fee <laughs> so I was like, he is right. a
1: captain k champion yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. so i'd i'd done what was your long run
3: longest run I ran Ten miles. So <laughs> hey, wow. folks. I mean, I was running eight miles every Thursday, so I. Was
1: <laughs> <laughs> so you were wow. really prepped. I mean,
3: I, I run almost every day, yeah. so I was. I was running. I run thirty-five to forty miles. So, so I'm you're not, better I'm shape not, than me. I'm not a novice. I'm just not. Uh, I never like. Lit- I ran 14 miles a lot in college, and never run more than 14 since college, basically. So yeah.
1: you've never done a 20 mile run. The famous I've never done a 15 mile 14 run. mile yeah. long run set, <laughs> Coach so McDonald.
0: Yeah. how did that feel how did the experience go
3: um so it was one of those things like again all my buddies were like prepping me on what to think and what to feel and what to do and uh i ran the first 10 miles in about 68 minutes and felt like the whole time like man i could throw down a five minute mile at any point you know and i'm like and then i had one of my friends jump in at 12 miles a bandit you know who <laughs> sh- should be you know tart and feathered apparently
1: so no he just ran with you for a little while right so he ran (laughs) ran with
3: me and then uh, in the whole time i'm like dude i feel great and i had another friend with me who biked for about that same time so Mm -hmm. we're all just hanging out talking i'm like you know and they're like you're doing great you're doing great and uh at the same th- i went through 20 and uh the next one was 69 minutes mm-hmm. and then i'm like about 21 i'm like i don't think i can throw down that five minute mile anymore <laughs> i was like this is um, this is bad like um, which i knew that's that was the worst part of it was like waiting for it i was like yeah. i wish because the, per- the three or four days before i'm like i know i can run 15 miles at seven minute pace but i have no idea what like just Fast forward me to that part, to the hurt. <laughs> I, I'm ready for the hurt. I just don't want the... I don't want anticipation the, of the hurt? The
0: anticipation. So the, the, six miles the, of suffering? The foreplay, yeah. <laughs> it's about five yeah,
1: we say, well, one of our favorite statements here is the marathon always wins. But you did get over on it. it it's nice to have talent.
3: <laughs> yeah. Talent, Maybe. Oh, talent oh. tenacity, something are yeah, well, we I know you're tenacious, stupidity.
1: but I do think you're also the talent level. That's what I wanted to tell our listeners is don't get totally frustrated by the fact that a guy like adam can just roll out of bed and do that uh there are people who are built uh been doing this for a long long time many 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 years and all that work doesn't ever go away and the ability to suffer and push and hurt um at the level that you've had to do is is not inconsequential
3: well that's what the buddy who ran with me the last 14 miles like dude I'll be there to get you the finish. Like everything's gonna start falling apart. I'm like, look at me, I'm I'm a tank. <laughs> like my body's not gonna fall apart. Like right. you know what I mean? I might start puking, I might start getting yep. blisters. I mean, I, yeah. I, I don't know, but like my 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 yeah. legs or knees aren't gonna fall apart. <laughs> I mean I'm I'm a I'm a I'm a strong dude yeah, in, in you that are. way, you know. So yep. and I've always been built like that. So I wasn't worried about that. I was worried about everything else other than, you know, falling apart, Yeah.
0: You put in the work many
1: miles, maybe not, in training for that race, but for other races. Not our recommended <laughs> protocol for <laughs> getting ready, but but still a tip of the hat to you for your Boston. So tell us a little bit. What, what are you thinking about for Boston? You're running Boston 2017? I mean, 2018? Or are you going to – what are you thinking? Is that I have to. I mean, I can't delay that, can I?
0: No. Not really. Not anymore. Not but
3: anymore. are you going to train for it? Uh, I tbd when do i have to start training
1: i would say for you you could. that sounds like you could start training about three weeks before but for most people i would say january if you got started going in january 1 if you made it that would
3: be the. i would love to like get serious about it the problem is like what's getting serious like i'm a competitive person so if i start trying to run 235 or something then i'd probably be like well 230 is not that far off and then i'd be like 225 is not that far off and then i'd so true and then i'd start watching what i eat and drink and god we all know i don't want to be that type of person. <laughs> <laughs> no one wants you to be then that you'll person you'll end up on a year-long <laughs> trip
0: again so what are you doing now adam i know you've started three other businesses since coming back from the trip you're living in san diego what's life like now for the daily family now with five kids by the way
3: yeah we had uh last kid in uh last september so and we're done we're tapping out with five so <laughs> Sure um, you are. I've no, heard it's, that one before. It's well, if you do, phys- it physically, the, it, it's, it's impossible. Supposedly not it's supposed, supposed to happen. <laughs> so. Um, no, so I, yeah, I have, I have different Airbnb properties I manage now. So I have, I acquire Airbnb properties, vacation rentals and, and rent them out in San Diego. That's one of my businesses. And I have another business that does more or less the same thing. I bring groups to the Olympics. So instead of bringing individuals, now I bring groups. Um, And now I do, you know, I go and write and speak and make a little money, not enough to pay the bills, but I I do that as well.
0: Very cool. Any takeaways from your running, business, travel, career that you'd wanna share with the audience?
3: I mean, it's it's the same lessons, it's team and it's focus and it's discipline. And so it's like, again, like I talk about like, yeah, it would be nice to have a Stanford degree because of the network, but I also learned so much being a part of a you know high caliber team where we were doing where we were focused on something else it wasn't academics necessarily but it was it was something you know and so i feel like that that translates to family it translates to business so all those things
0: very good well thanks for joining us yeah one final you, question any dirt on steve that i need to know about
3: man oh, we should have got to this way earlier <laughs> <laughs> i mean yeah i mean steve is <laughs> is uh, so much dirt on steve so it's, we need uh, another podcast for that i don't even know where to start <laughs> uh, <laughs> I mean, we'll i've you. known steve for 23 years and i've we've hung out maybe a thousand times over those years and sober maybe three times, <laughs> you know so <laughs> my cool. favorite
1: my favorite Adam moment um has to be we went we went to the in the 2008 olympics I do think we both have a side business that we could actually, we thought about this for a little bit, I think Adam, where we sat in the, cl- in the crowd at the 2008 Olympics. Um, we had seats that were on the on the back stretch, which is sort of one of the most famous places in Hayward Field, which is where all the crowd goes crazy and they're especially cognizant of the distance runners. But Adam and I had a whole bunch of knowledge, but Adam's not that far removed and had been doing some tours. With Ludas, so he knew some of the people doing the pole vault and the shot put. And I knew them because I just started coaching at the University of Texas. So I had um, a lot more knowledge about all the other events, not just the distances. But Adam and I started just talking about what we knew about on during the races or during the event and the first we ended up sitting next to I think it was about three or four days four days that was I think that year wasn't the seven day thing it was like a shorter cycle I can't remember exactly but we sat nearly in the same spot and other people had the same tickets so we ended up just talking to the people around us nearly every day about what was going on in the meet and we realized man we should just get headphones some kind of like a podcasty thing where we would literally go through and Comment on. Okay, oh, look over here at the high jump. We're getting ready to watch this guy run. He's last jump. He missed. He's got two scratches. And they're like, "What's a scratch?" He doesn't. He hasn't gotten over it in two. Like people <laughs> are sitting there at the most uh, one of the greatest track venues in the world who don't even know what's going on. And we're like, "Wow!" Just educating people in this little window. We had so much fun talking to all these different people about our different knowledges of the sport. It was so. And your daughter was there, Kiara, who was was so. Great to have that experience with her. It's like had a great number of amazing experiences. That one still, to my mind, is like one of the greatest that we had because we got to share our love of the sport and do it at a pretty cool venue, and had both of our families there. It was super cool. I mean, it's
3: the the community you guys have built here is pretty neat. I texted Steve a photo last year of a Rogue sticker in San Diego on a truck that <laughs> nice. I thought. I mean, I I think that is is awesome. I mean, and I think you know we've I've talked extensively with Steve over the years, like hopefully you guys will figure out how to monetize this and, you know <laughs> we're starting to figure and, it out and uh <laughs> but i mean wha- a good one t- one thing that just came to me was a good Steve story that I like to tell, and uh is that when we were i was probably i don't even know how old I was I was eighteen or something maybe, and we were out having fun one night and we came back and Steve somehow hit a curb <laughs> on the you know but probably a quarter mile from my parents' house and the and little, little little flat f- v w fox yeah, I had right flat tire and so He's like, oh, let's fix it. You know, it's two in the morning or something like that. And so he's like, I can't fix it. I don't know what I'm (laughs) doing. Who am I kidding? So we go home and and crash on. He crashed on my parents couch. And then, you know, at six or eight or whatever time in the morning, we go back to fix it. And there there's his car parked right off Windsor and Hartford, (laughs) literally like like into the curb like one wheel (laughs) up on the curb door wide open with the tire iron on the yard and it's (laughs) like oh there's there's the car like so we found it. (laughs) I run
1: by that every time I run by there I'm always like walk of shame. It still gets me with a walk of shame (laughs) good thing you're only a mile from home.
0: (laughs) Well thanks Adam for joining us. We appreciate it. It's been super interesting talking to you. Definitely everybody out there go check out Adam's book on Amazon how to run away from home and bring your family with you thanks again for joining us yeah thanks adam this has been episode 29 as always you can check us out at roguerunning.com or follow us on facebook twitter or instagram at roguerunning we'll talk to you next time